Welcome to CME CE on ReachMD. This activity titled, A Portrait of Bipolar 1 Depression, Visualizing Improved Patient Care on World Bipolar Day, is provided in collaboration by Forefront Collaborative and AKH Incorporated, and is supported by an educational grant from Allergan. This replay of a live broadcast focuses on how we can improve the diagnosis and treatment of bipolar 1 depression. Now, here's your moderator, Dr. Joseph Goldberg. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to our presentation tonight on diagnosis and treatment of bipolar depression. Happy Bipolar World Day. Happy National Doctor Day. Glad you can be here with us this evening. I'm Dr. Joe Goldberg. I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Dr. Andy Nirenberg from Mass General Hospital. Hello, Andy. Glad to be here. Thanks, Joe. An honor, privilege, and pleasure. And my colleague, Dr. Larry Culpepper, who's professor of family medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Larry, welcome. Hi, thanks. Glad to join you guys. You'll note that our disclosures are available to you on the event page. Our first presentation, we're going to call a call to action, the need for earlier, more accurate diagnosis and improved treatment for bipolar one disorder. So I'm going to begin just with some background and context for this presentation tonight. Imagine, if you will, a lifelong medical condition that robs people of their normal life expectancy by as much as 10 to 12 years, nearly tripling the chance of premature death due to all causes, all medical causes. And on the slide you have in front of you here, the standardized mortality ratios across age groups for people with bipolar disorder versus the general population, you see a substantial increase a uh, multifold higher likelihood of all-cause mortality compared to the general population in people that have bipolar disorder. This is a condition that typically strikes in youth, late adolescence, young adulthood. It collides precisely with the developmental milestones that we think of for achieving our educational, our social, our financial, our work independence, and our identities. It's a condition the World Health Organization still counts as the number six cause of disability in the world. We could have the next slide, please. I think that shows from the Global Burden of Disease study where five of the top 10 causes of disability in the world are psychiatric and there's bipolar disorder right in the middle. More often than not, bipolar disorder is a condition that's accompanied by one or more other serious psychiatric conditions. Part of what makes this illness so challenging scientifically and clinically is, is that it's seldom presenting all by itself. We see patients with bipolar disorder and alcohol or substance use disorders and anxiety disorders and eating disorders and medical comorbidities as well, as we'll discuss in just a moment. Imagine that the morbidity from this illness isn't just one phase. It's not just manic episodes. It's hypomanic episodes. It's depressed phases of the illness with the downside, the depressed phase of the illness being the more common and more burdensome phase with regards to both morbidity and mortality over time. Six to 10 years on average goes by from the initial onset of this illness until an accurate diagnosis and an accurate treatment plan is formulated. And quite often this can be a complex and chronic, yet highly treatable condition. So one of our messages of optimism tonight is when it's accurately recognized early on, the prognosis can be among the best of any psychiatric ailment. 
So one of our main objectives tonight is to talk about early recognition, early intervention. Before this program started, you may have seen a quotation from the author James Edgar Skye. This is on slide, the slide you have right in front of you now. He's someone who lives with bipolar disorder, has written about his lived experience. He's suffered with the burden of this condition, including the depressed phase. Uh, we wish to thank him for sharing his experience and keep him in mind as we think about him and other patients as we go through our presentation tonight. So, you know, the longer we wait, to recognize a medical condition, any medical condition, the harder it is usually to treat. The prognosis becomes affected by durations of untreated illness. That's true in cancer. It's true in infectious disease. It's true in heart disease. It's true in just about all forms of serious mental illnesses. And so the duration of untreated illness becomes its own important parameter. If that duration is as little as two years, we see suicide rates can become extremely elevated. Uh, I think the next slide here, you can see this percentage of suicide attempts stratified by even just a two-year delay from symptom onset till actual intervention. People with bipolar disorders have a substantially increased risk for suicide attempts or completion, especially during the depressed phase. So you know, part of the challenge here is distinguishing unipolar from bipolar disorder. We'll talk about that tonight. To identify someone as having bipolar illness, you have to have had at least one lifetime mania or a hypomania. But again, the depressions are often dominant, and that's part of what makes the diagnostic challenge so difficult. Sometimes the patient doesn't advertise the history of a mania or a hypomania. They just present with depression. And so our task is really to sort of ferret through the history. This is why screening becomes so critical uh, to minimize duration of untreated illness, to maximize the success rates by using appropriate treatments, also minimize some of the, the medical complications. People with bipolar disorder tend to be overrepresented with metabolic syndrome, with hypertension, cardiovascular disease, smoking, sedentary lifestyles. And you know, when you think about it, if we can make effective interventions in their mental health, that actually help them live longer and live better lives. Much easier to treat a first episode of any ailment than the umpteenth episode, whether that's a heart attack or epilepsy or bipolar disorder. So we want to give great thought to the importance of early intervention, makes the outcomes far, far more favorable. This means not just asking patients themselves about their histories and taking a longitudinal perspective, but also getting collateral historians to corroborate information. I always like to teach that it is worth the investment of time and energy to do a very thorough initial evaluation. We start with screening. We'll talk about that more tonight. But screening is sort of a gateway entry to identifying patients that are at risk for bipolar disorder. We'll be talking about some of the telltale signs like early age at onset or a family history or highly recurrent brief depressions that come and go and come and go or not such great responses to antidepressants. These are some of the clues that tip us off to thinking someone with depression may actually not have unipolar disorder. So we're gonna be going through some cases tonight and a lot of questions and answers. And for our next segment, I'm gonna turn things over to Dr. Colbert. Why, thanks Joe. And we do have three cases. We're gonna, we actually, our uh, viewers are gonna select one of the cases and we will follow that case through both segments of this uh, evening. So first we'll discuss the diagnostic uh, assessment of the patient, uh, recognizing, diagnosing uh, uh, the patient. And then uh, the second half of the evening, we'll uh, focus on treatment of the same patient. So uh, it's a polling question. And 
we have the three cases. Sam, who's a 27-year-old referred for psychiatric evaluation after threatening to knock the lights off of a colleague's. Anna, who's a 20-year-old uh, patient referred by her parents for failure to thrive. Um, and C, David, who's a 50-year-old who's urged by his wife to seek help because of mood swings. So let's go to the, the polling. A is Sam. He's um, you know, in for knocking the lights off or almost knocking the lights off of a colleague. Anna, who's uh, uh, just not doing well, according to her parents. And David, whose wife wants him fixed, uh, wants help because of his mood swings. So which case do you want us to uh, pursue this evening? And you'll be able to review all these cases yourselves. Uh, yeah. We have all these cases, so you'll be able to download the PDFs, but we're, we're going to pick one tonight. Uh-oh, a tie. Let's uh, see. Are all the votes in? Sam's pulling ahead. Sam's pulling ahead. All right. It's looking like Sam. All right. Knocking out the lights. Okay. So we're going to move on to Sam. And uh, Sam, let me give you more information about Sam. He's a 27-year-old. He's a single aspiring actor. He was raised uh, by his divorced mother along with his fraternal twin. Uh, he's had low-grade depression and social phobia since childhood. He binge drinks before auditions and acting jobs or first days. Yeah, whenever he's under pressure. Uh, and unfortunately, just becomes a sloppy drunk with predictable bad results. He's had supportive psychotherapy. He's had trials of SSRIs and NSRIs that have been quite adequate. Uh, he's had benzodiazepines without benefit. Uh, he's had therapy, and his therapy, uh, his therapist says his dramatic, irritable outbursts are just his diva personality traits, uh, along with maybe his drinking. He was referred by his union manager for psychiatric evaluation after threatening to knock the lights out of a lightning technician. Uh, a little poetic justice there, I guess, uh, for making too much noise. A little bit more history. Um, yeah, uh, we have more history coming, but all the following would help to corroborate a possible diagnosis of bipolar disorder, except which of the following? And again, this is a polling question. History of either bipolar disorder or panic disorder in his fraternal twin. Uh, B, the presence of an alcohol use disorder as a freestanding condition. C, a personal history of a suicide attempt. D, a personal history of a psychotic depression. So which of these would help, uh, would not help corroborate uh, the possible diagnosis of bipolar disorder? Which one's not uh, really supportive, um, really doesn't help you with it? Well, it's shifting a bit, huh? Yeah, well, seems like it. Well, it's neck and neck with uh, A and B, but it looks like D is is still ahead. Yeah. Do I get to reveal what we believe is true here? So um, I, I hate to say it, but um, uh, uh, the correct answer is actually B. Uh, the presence of an alcohol use disorder as a freestanding condition wouldn't in itself be so helpful as would the other items 
in differentiating bipolar disorder. So a, a fraternal twin, it'd be great to have a clone, right? Same DNA, although even there, it's not 100% concordance, but it's pretty high, 65 to 80%. Fraternal twin, first degree relative, you've still got pretty good data, maybe 10 to 25% informative about, about the genetics of this disorder. Um, suicide attempts, unfortunately, can run in bipolar families, and so that's that's informative. And psychotic depressions actually tend to be a little more commonly seen in people that are at risk for bipolar disorders. So while none of these is a clincher, they're all clues in the story. And uh, the, the, those three would stand out. Alcohol is certainly relevant, but it's not as directly informative. Okay, so let me give you a little bit more history. Um, got a consulting psychiatrist involved because of the referral. And um, he or she contacted Sam's current psychiatrist uh, to get more information. When the consultant asked about past symptoms, either of psychosis or mania, hypomania, Sam's current psychiatrist interjected that Sam did not have bipolar disorder because when he administered the MDQ, or the mood disorder questionnaire, the score was only five. So another polling question. Which of the following statements is true? So that's not accepted, which is true about making a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Option A is Sam's MDQ score. Uh, below seven means that he does not have bipolar disorder. Uh, B, epidemiologic studies report prevalence rate for comorbid alcohol use disorder of up to 90% of individuals with bipolar disorder. C, the MDQ may be a less reliable instrument in patients with mood disorders with active alcohol or substance use disorders. And D, it is not necessary to have a history of mania or hypomania to make a diagnosis of bipolar one or bipolar two depression. So which of the following statements is true? Three of them aren't. Which one does stand out? as helping you make a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And looks like so far we've got C. And that looks right to me. That looks right to me also. Yeah. If we could leave yeah. these up for just a sec, let's just briefly talk about these. So what's the mood disorders questionnaire? The MDQ is one of the screening tools that's been validated as a screen, not a proxy for the diagnosis, but a screen, just like, well, any other screen in medicine. Uh, Pick a screening test, you know, doing a SED rate, doing a, a, a pap smear. It, it's informative. You want to screen in as many patients. You don't want to miss anybody, but then you have to cone down deeper. So if somebody scores above a seven on the MDQ, doesn't mean they have bipolar disorder, but it means that it's very likely they might. If they score below it, it doesn't guarantee they don't. It just means it's less likely that they would. Um, Alcohol use, as I said a little bit earlier, certainly is common in people with bipolar disorder. It's not nine out of 10, though. It's a little bit on the high side. So it's not quite that high. Studies would say maybe 60%. The, the National Comorbidity Survey, I think, went up as high as 70% thereabouts. So it's not quite as high as that. Um, so mood disorder questionnaire is less reliable if there's active alcohol or substance use. Um, doesn't mean you can't use it, but it means it's awfully tough to differentiate somebody whose mood symptoms may conflict with active use. You have to go back in time and find a period where they were not contaminating their mood with alcohol or substances, and about half the time that's tough to do. And 
ooh, item D. So yeah, if nothing else for tonight, please leave here knowing that to call someone bipolar disorder, they have to have had at least one mania or hypomania. That's a necessary criterion for membership in the bipolar club. And, and those episodes of mania or hypomania, it's very helpful if they're unequivocal and if you have an informant who helped you uh, be able to define that. Yeah, so next question. Uh, we really have a number of screening tools. The MDQ, you've mentioned, the uh, Rapid Mood Screener, six questions, uh, much newer, but uh, uh, as good as the MDQ, uh, and two other longer instruments. So uh, um, what are the limitations of these? So part of the limitations has to do with their positive predictive value and negative predictive value. And particularly with the MDQ, it really picks up many more false positives than would be useful. But as Joe said earlier, it's really very helpful to have something that at least prompts you to think about it and then go back to the history and see if somebody not only had the symptoms of mania or hypomania, but they happened at the same time. Um, so you really want to, you want that to be able to have a network, a crystal, if you will, of how all of those symptoms are related. So it's it's not a definitive test, but it is a test that can help you look into the past history. This is where the dialogue with Sam's consulting psychiatrist gets a little spicy, because if the consultant comes in and says, well, he can't have bipolar disorder, because he didn't screen positive for it, we have to say, you know, it's a screen. It doesn't completely negate the possibility, although it is true, the negative predictive value of these screens is pretty good. So that means if you do score below the threshold, it's a fairly high chance you don't have the ailment. If you score positive, it doesn't mean you do, but it means it's like you're saying, it's an it's an entry point. It really guides your interview to, to pin down some of these criteria, clarify them longitudinally and get corroboration from a from a third party collateral historian. Yeah, I find, uh, you know, if both the patient and say a spouse or a, a parent uh, answers M MDQ with mm -hmm. a low score, I, I have a lot more confidence than if just the patient who may just not recognize, you know, the, the um, extremes of his own behavior. You, know, you, give, you, so you give out these scales to, to a patient and then you go over it with the patients. The other thing, we, we published a study saying, you know, Fill, have the patient fill it out and don't just put it in the chart. Go over it with them. Make sure that they understood what the questions mean. And when you use these scales as a semi-structured interview, the reliability is enormously high. We've we published data with, with uh, sensitivity and specificity over 90% after you use it to affirm that when the scale says racing thoughts, the patient didn't mean anxious ruminations. And when you say flight of ideas, it didn't mean anxiety. So it's very helpful to guide the interview. And yeah, also, I, I, uh, sorry, I like to ask people if they say they have racing thoughts, said, if I was able to hear your thoughts, what would I hear? And have them try to recreate it if they don't have it at the moment. Yeah, for, you know, for us in primary care, it, it also is, uh, these questionnaires a lot of times also really are, are sort of cribs uh, to identify things we can explore further in our interview. And particularly when we have, you know, say a patient and a spouse, and they're very divergent, uh, that itself can often help us open up conversation that uh, can be quite helpful to, um, you know, to families. For sure. I think we have a screening uh, question coming up. Yeah. Speaking of questions, on our next slide. Uh, yeah. There we go. So 
The consultant psychiatrist differential included bipolar one disorder uh, in the depressed phase, possibly with some X features, are uh, major depressive disorder with max features. So the key point of differentiation between these two DSM-5 uh, diagnoses is which of the following? So these again are the following questions. A, agitation and sleep disruption uh, occur in bipolar depression, but not uh, major depression with uh, max features, unipolar. So patients with uh, unipolar major depression have never met the DSM-5 criteria for a hypomanic episode. Uh, C option is irritability is, a un is unique to the mood disturbances in bipolar disorder, but is not part of unipolar depression with mixed features. RD in a patient with mixed features, irritability, distractibility, and agitation are symptoms that can double count towards simultaneously defining both manic and hypomanic and depressive episodes. So let's see what people are thinking. And they're going back and forth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Looks like it's a split decision. Yeah, A and D are coming up strong, but D is pulling ahead a little. Maybe here's a good chance for us to say what MDDMF even is, because some of our, our attendees may not have even heard of this concept of major depression with mixed features. Andy, can you concisely tell us what is MDDMF? So, so major depressive disorder with mixed features is having some of the features of mania and hypomania, but falls short of the diagnostic criteria. So just a few of those. So that would be like answer B, huh? That would be like answer B. Yeah, it's a, it was really the DSM-5's effort to move our thinking toward a spectrum. And the idea that you don't necessarily have just mania and just depression, but that there are observations, a lot of people who are manic can have even low grade mixed elements of the downside. But more interestingly, there are patients who've never had a full mania or hypomania, but syndromal depression. And as you say, they may have some of the elements of the opposite pole. Now, the interesting question is, what do they grow up to be? If you follow them out, do many of them go on to have a course suggestive of bipolar disorder? Studies don't really give us definitive answers to that. Some studies may say 20% over five years may go on to qualify for the full syndromal conversion. But these are people that go on our, our watch lists. Yeah, so we really have, uh, you know, on the next slide, uh, um, a disagreement here. The consulting that never happens in psychiatry. Nah. Consulting psychiatrist says bipolar one. Uh, Sam's current psychiatrist says uh, no, it's treatment resistant major depression plus some anger management uh, issues rather than the bipolar one. So, how are you going to resolve that? Uh, Andy, what would you do next? So what I would do is go into depth both with the patient and their informant about the times that they might have had at least some of the symptoms of mania or hypomania. And again, make sure that they had the symptoms at the same time, right? So that if it turned out that every once in a while he got angry and was irritable, but had no other symptoms of mania or hypomania, it would be, that would be against the diagnosis. But if he had a decreased need for sleep along with the irritability and racing thoughts and grandiosity that was different than his usual self, 
then uh, it would be more consistent with the diagnosis. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. By the way, I want, to I want to remind our attendees that we have our polling questions open and our Q&A open, so please submit your questions as you're hearing about these cases. You know, it's, I think when Sam threatened to punch the lights out of the lighting technician, if I was interviewing Sam, I'd want to know what was happening prior to that. Did he not sleep the night before? Has he been sleep deprived? Actors have a high risk profession. They have shoots overnight. Is there any substances in the picture? I mean, you want context for these things. If Sam looks back and says, I can't believe I said that, my mouth opened, the words came out with no filter, and there's a sense of impulsivity that's inconsistent with who Sam is, that, that's a little more comforting about the diagnosis than if Sam just says, well, he deserved it, and it's it wasn't an impulsive, it was more of a deliberate kind of thing. So you, you almost want to get his perspective. It's, it's almost like people that overspend when they're manic, and, and you say, well, did you really need to buy 10 houses? Uh, and if they say, yes, I did. You wonder, as opposed to pay, you know, buyer's regret, you say, I can't believe I did that. Where was my thinking? Because there's this notion of just loss of perspective when you're in the throes of a mania or hypomania. All right. So I think with this, speaking of questions, we are up to our questioning. Um, and let's see, we've got a couple of questions. I'm going to just, for the sake of time, give us one or two. Um, so when we talked about screening before, we mentioned the mood disorders questionnaire, and someone's asking this other screening tool that's a little newer called the Rapid Mood Screener. Um, this is a six-item, it's like six-minute ads, so it's a six-item uh, questionnaire that was, I think, just recently published this year um, uh, by Roger McIntyre that, that's nicely validated. So it's a little faster and more streamlined. It's key to some of the core elements, like racing thoughts, um, that, that can help to differentiate unipolar from bipolar disorder. If you score at least four items on this six-point scale, it's got a pretty good predictive value of bipolar disorder. So whereas the mood disorders questionnaire has about 13 items on it, you've got to score a seven or higher. There's a little bit quicker. Um, you know, they're all sort of going after the DSM symptoms. And again, our job is to assure that patients are describing this as a constellation not like Sam was angry on Thursday, but then sleep deprived two weeks later, but that these things fall together. So we take these screens and we use them to really guide our interview uh, to try to come up with um, a rationale for the diagnosis. I agree. Yeah, I mean, they, they, their sensitive and specificity are virtually the same for the MDQ and the, and the rapid uh, screener. Uh, I, I find I still consider both useful the mood disorder questionnaire gives me a lot more items to go back and ask the patient uh, more about. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on how you use the screener in your practice with these patients. I think the one thing I would say is if you do a PHQ-9 and it's positive, you got to go on to one of these. You know, you don't stop there. You've got to go on to uh, then think about uh, bipolar. Mm -hmm. And indeed, every patient with syndromal depression really needs to be screened for a history of mania or hypomania. One nice thing about these screening tools is they're self-administered, at least the, the mood disorders, actually, but they're both self-administered screened. So a patient can fill this out in the waiting room, bring it in. Hello, Mr. Nirenberg, it's nice to meet you. Oh, one, two, three. okay, I see what we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes. So it really can help you know, move things along. I, I, I find measurement-based care really helpful, especially when time is limited and we want to know what, where to sort of hone in and, and zero in. And if patient scores zero on everything, we can move on to talk about other things. So, yeah, and you got to do it at the beginning of every episode, every new episode of, of uh, depression, 
really deserves, if you've not diagnosed bipolar department, you still got to look at for it. Excellent point, Larry. A lot of things can happen over time. And just because somebody may have not ever had a mania by age 21, they come back 10 years later and they're depressed. A lot of baseball gets played in the middle. So you want to be conscious of that. All right. So I think we're going to move on at this point to our next segment. We're going to hear now from Dr. Nirenberg on an overview of treatments recommended for bipolar one depression. Take it away, Andy. Great. Thanks, Joe. Next slide, please. Uh, one of the things about bipolar depression is that there are only four FDA-approved treatments. There's the olanzapine-fluoxetine combination, ketiapine, lorazidone, and cariprazine. So these are the big four currently approved by the FDA. Um, it's quite remarkable that there are only four medications approved. But one of the things that, that I'll say again and again, you will see there's no antidepressant on this list except fluoxetine in combination with olanzapine. Otherwise, there's no monotherapy antidepressant, and there's no current antidepressant that is approved alone for bipolar depression. Let's go through each one of these, look at the data. They will all converge in that you'll see that there's a pattern that about 50% respond to the olanzapine-fluoxetine combination, and you'll see around 50% in each of the following slides. What you will see is a difference in the placebo response rates, and that's why you can't quite really directly compare these. And none of these four have compared to, have compared to each other at all, which is also quite remarkable. So we can't currently just say this medication is better for this type of treatment, but they do differentiate in terms of side effects, and we'll tell you about that in a minute. In terms of its use, it, olanzapine fluoxetine adjunctive with lithium valproate, and the big limitation, the big limitation is metabolic syndrome. It makes people very big, and that is a problem with weight gain. What I want you to notice is the discontinuation rates on the right, and the discontinuation rates with placebos over 61%. Keep that in mind, and we'll compare that to the others as we go through this. Next, please. Then we have ketiapine, and you notice, again, it's about 50% response rate, whether you're giving 300 or 600. Now, one of the things that's important to note, this does not tell you if you don't respond to 300, will you then respond to a higher dose at 600? We don't quite know that. This does not answer that question. But what it does show is it, that you will get more side effects with the 600. That we know when there's a direct head-to-head -head comparison. So it's approved for acute treatment of depressive episodes, also for maintenance, and that's important. Uh, the other side effects are sort of the usual side effects that you'll see with these, but also risk of metabolic syndrome makes people big. They don't like that. Placebo discontinuation rates, about 40% or so. And again, you can see why you can't quite compare them if the placebo rates are, are discontinuation. The discontinuation rates are so different. Then we have lorazidone. Look at that. It's again about 50%, low dose range, 20 to 60, higher dose range, 80 to 120. Doesn't tell you if you don't respond to the low dose, will you do better at the higher dose? Uh, but again, it's all around 50% or so. Now, this is very important because in order to absorb it, you got to eat 350 calories. It's approved adjunctive with lithium or valparate. And here, the side effects are quite different than what you've heard thus far. Here, it can be activating with akathisia and expiramidal symptoms, or it can actually cause somnolence. I think on average, and 
I would ask Joe and, and Larry to comment on. It's about a third, a third, a third. One third won't have it. One third will get agitated. One third will get somnolent uh, about that. And then some GI side effects. But look at that placebo discontinuation rate. It's almost 10 times less than what was seen in the olanzapine fluoxetine. That's why it's very hard to directly compare these. And then you have the last one that's come on the market, which is cariprazine, about 50%, whether you use the lower dose or the higher dose. There's another study that showed that the higher dose did not separate from placebo. So here it's a little unclear if more is better. And it's unclear if you target 1.5 or try to target 3.0. Also doesn't answer the question. If you don't respond to 1.5, do you go up to 3.0? That is actually unknown. It's approved as monotherapy. And the side effects, again, it can get agitated uh, or you can have somnolence. I don't know if we have a good feel yet for the proportion who get agitated or, or somnolent. My guess it's about, again, the third, third, third may be actually true. But look at that placebo discontinuation rate. It's tiny. It's only two and a half percent. Again, this is just a caution that you can't quite directly compare these, and they haven't been directly compared. This is a very nice summary that was put together by Les Citrome to try to put it all together. So in response, around 50% for all of them. Weight gain, big for olanzapine, right? Big weight gain, olanzapine fluoxetine. Uh, with quetiapine, it also occurs, but maybe not as frequently. But the burden with quetiapine is sedation, right? Less so with olanzapine fluoxetine, but certainly less with lorazidone and cariprazine. So this gives you some sense of how to indirectly compare them. Now, the Canadian guidelines, which are considered among the best, but now they're three years old, so they probably have to get revised soon. And the International Society of Bipolar Disorder guidelines have these treatments, uh, these treatment recommendations. And if you look at it, you glance at it, you'll see there's cotiapine and lorazidone. Um, and uh, a secondary treatments were actually even cariprazine. I don't, I, that might be revised uh, with, with uh, better data recently. With maintenance, you'll also see cotiapine and then you'll see lithium rise up. Lithium may be better for maintenance to prevent mania, and lamotrigine may be better to prevent depression. And the treatments that are clearly not recommended, right? These are negative studies, include aripiprazole monotherapy, which is surprising because it is approved for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, unipolar, Ciprazidone, lamotrigine plus folic acid, although we can argue about that and a couple of other things. But what's really important is that antidepressant monotherapy, right, is not recommended. And you may hear us say that again and again, it's just not recommended, okay? There's also, um, it, it, it's such a low probability that it's gonna help. Uh, it, it makes sense to really think carefully before you turn to antidepressant monotherapy. So here are a couple of questions for you about this, right? One, what is the one reason antidepressant monotherapy is not recommended for bipolar one depression? One is that it can trigger manic episodes in rapid cycling. It can trigger a depressive episode B. It, it can worsen a depressive episode C in bipolar disorder or antidepressant monotherapy can worsen anxiety D, right? So vote your conscious, vote frequently, 
let's see what you see. So A, it's going to cause manic episodes and rapid cycling. B, can trigger a depressive episode. C, antidepressant monotherapy can worsen. Or D, it can worsen anxiety. Let's see if we're able to get the results here. We had a technical problem of getting that. All right, so you're texting reach MD to 22333. And you go A, B, C, or D. Looks like we're not getting through it here and if maybe the audience not, realizes this is a complicated question this is a complicated question that's right so so really the answer is a right that that uh, there's an increased risk that it can trigger a manic episode and rapid cycling but also as i said before there's the risk that it can uh not work which is a probability um and, and uh, that's that's pretty much the problem I would just like to underscore the last part when Dr. Nirenberg and I have uh, uh, had friendly debates on this topic before about the perils of antidepressants. Many clinicians presume that the main peril is, is answer A, that can they trigger manic episodes or rapid cycling? And as Andy quickly glossed over in his comment, that is a risk, but it's not a huge risk. The, the studies would say, yeah, maybe 12 to 18% or so of bipolar patients may have in the short run, an accelerate an induction of mania. Longer term, a little more data saying you may get more episodes over time. But the even bigger risk with monotherapy is that no one's ever shown that antidepressants work. So when someone asks you what's the biggest risk with an antidepressant, um, you know, it, it's somewhat of a risk that it can induce mania or rapid cycling. They haven't been shown to cause suicidality. There is not a database I'm aware of that says antidepressants will make bipolar patients more suicidal. But really, the biggest concern is it's got a very large number needed to treat. You have to give a lot of people an antidepressant before you see a benefit. So the biggest risk is they don't work. And, and I, I think also there's a big myth that somehow bupropion has a special status in working for bipolar depression. It turns out not to be true. Mythbusters. Right. Right. Shall we move on to our next segment? All right, so there are some treatments under investigation, and out of these, lumetepirone is on the path to get approved, while all these others, maybe ketamine, um, may or may not ever get approved for it, or S-ketamine, uh, but certainly there's a lot of data that suggests it can work in the short term and the long term. There's much less data for pramipexol, um, modafinil, armodafinil, and thyroid. So now we've got to deal with treating Sam. And we've started out with a disagreement. Sam's current psychiatrist thinks he has treatment-resistant major depression plus anger management issues, not bipolar disorder. And he proposes a trial of olanzapine fluoxetine combination saying it'll cover both bases. While the consulting psychiatrist says, well, yeah, OFC would be reasonable for treatment-resistant depression, but its metabolic baggage is huge. And the liability from, uh, you know, for Sam from the metabolic consequences, particularly over a longer term, outweighs possible benefits. So he instead suggests treating uh, bipolar depression with um, you know, a treatment that's got a, a lower metabolic risk. So next polling question. All of the following evidence-based treatments for bipolar depression are associated with relative little weight gain 
during long-term clinical trials except A, catiapine, B, lamotrigine, C, lorazidone, or D, cariprazine. So which of those um, does cause some weight gain? All of the following are associated with little weight gain uh, during long-term trials, except which? Catiapine, lamotrigine, lorazidone, or cariprazine. Well, it looks like we're having another technological glitch. So let's give them the answer, which is A. A causes weight gain. Catiapine is associated with weight gain and metabolic syndrome, a little less than OFC, but it is associated with it. And so let's, uh, let's keep going. So Sam did begin uh, treatment with lorazidone, 40 milligrams a day, and he did initially show some improved mood. But within a few months, he began drinking again, binging, uh, and became increasingly depressed. He reports that he cannot concentrate and thinks that he really has attention deficit disorder uh, and would like to try taking a stimulant. You're skeptical about ADD and don't think a stimulant would help. He indicates that he is taking his meds, so he is adherent. Uh, he's also in psychotherapy, and he's attending AA meetings, so he's he's trying. He's uh, he's uh, uh, pulling his part of the the bargain here. So you are concerned about both his increased alcohol use and his worsening depression. And previously, Sam's dose of lorazidone was increased to 60 milligrams a day. Uh, but he did encounter sedation and anesthesia without really um, you know, any uh, mood benefit. So next question is our next polling. We'll see if that tech works. Which of the following would be an evidence-based next step in his treatment? A, discontinue the lorazidone and try an SSRI that he has not taken previously. B, Switch from lorazidone to topiramate. C, insists that he retry a higher dose of lorazidone. Or D, augment the lorazidone with Dalvalprox. So it uh, looks like we're getting answers, huh? Yes. Yeah, we're getting answers. So, Interesting. Yeah, Joe, what's. Uh, yeah, so, so you. Evidence-based would argue that an augmentation of lorazidone with Dibalproex might get you a little more bang for your buck since the data with lorazidone, both for monotherapy and augmentation, and while there wasn't a head-to-head -head comparison of combo with mono, you know, it, it's an evidence-based combination. Uh, going higher on the lorazidone dose doesn't really have an evidence base. In fact, interestingly, in the in the flexible dose studies that were that were done. Seldom was the effective dose a whole bunch higher than the starting out dose. So we don't really know that there's a clear dose relationship, at least for depression purposes with lorazidone. Um, adding to pyramate, nah, uh, pyramate has, has no data in bipolar disorder. There were five negative randomized trials in acute mania and no data in bipolar depression. It's got other properties of interest. It may help Sam lose weight. It may help may help with his alcohol. There's some nice off-label data using topiramate 
as, a, as an anti-craving drug. So it can actually have value for his alcohol, but it's not going to do much for his mood. And try an SSRI that hasn't been taken. Well, you know, we go back to the debate with the consulting psychiatrist who sounds like he wants Sam to take another SSRI. It's just, you know, we got this storyline and narrative going that, that Sam hasn't gotten better with antidepressants. And th there's enough data here to make us wonder about bipolar depression. So if Sam hasn't quite hit it off with lorazidone, one might think about a divalprox augmentation or one of the other evidence-based bipolar depression treatments that Dr. Nirenberg has been telling us about. Joe, would you also consider um, adding lithium instead of um, divalprox? Yes. So we, we can't have everything on the slide, but the, the database with lorazidone did identify, well-taken point, uh, augmentation of lorazidone with either divalprox or lithium, and if you think about lithium as a gold standard drug, and if Sam's early in his clinical career, lithium may work better before many episodes have gone by in time. One of our themes tonight is early recognition, and lithium is a drug that may work especially well early on. By the time you've had a bazillion episodes, the horse has long gone out of the barn. So for sure, I think about lithium. Joe, Andy, with, with patients like this, where you're, you know, you're, you're doing your best with them, uh, and obviously, it's going to be a little bit of a trial and error getting to the right medication for this patient. How long do you go usually between making a shift? You know, assuming the patient's you know, you know, not decompensating. Uh, how long do you go uh, before you make another change? I mean, in depression, we say you know, a couple of two or three weeks. Uh, for bipolar uh, depression, how long? Uh, is a good enough uh, sort of interim uh, trial step? Well, I think it depends on the slope. It depends whether they are gradually getting better and you're seeing some improvement, or if they're sort of flatlining with no improvement whatsoever. As every week goes by with no improvement whatsoever, I get increasingly nervous and increasingly concerned. So if you see zero, I mean really zero improvement in three weeks, I'd really start to get worried. Um, if there was some improvement in that time, then I would persist a little bit longer. But it's important to note that most of the studies were done at six weeks, yeah. um, no longer than eight weeks. And here's a little tidbit. There is some research to say by two weeks, you'd like to see a noticeable effect, or if you're using a rating scale, uh, at least a 20% improvement. So if you're giving a patient Pick your favorite rating scale. PHQ is not really meant to be track change over time. People still use it, but you know, if you're a researcher using a, a Madras or a Quids, or you could give a patient a Beck, but you can also just give them a visual analog scale and rate your depression. But some metric, you know, you wouldn't look at a blood pressure patient and say, "Are you feeling less hypertensive now?" So you'd like to see movement after two weeks, and if you haven't seen anything at all, you ought to do something. You change the dose, you augment. You can say uh, you, you've had a noticeable improvement in two weeks. You're on the right track. So uh, slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, agree. So excellent. I think we will turn to some questions now. We got a few questions here. Um, why are antidepressants recommended for adjunctive use and not as monotherapies in bipolar depression? Dr. Nierberg, you want to comment on that? So it's only, only the combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine. Um, that's it. Uh, I think we tend to reason, oh, okay. If it's uh, lanzapine and fluoxetine, can it be some other antipsychotic and some other antidepressant? 
not really. Um, that hasn't either been tested or it was shown to be particularly negative uh, when olanzapine fluoxetine first came out. The company looked at some other combinations and they just didn't work as well. So it's really important to know the only antidepressant that's been approved is in combination with olanzapine and that antidepressant is fluoxetine. No other antidepressant has ever shown efficacy. Of course, yeah. that's I think a lot of times we think, well, gee, you know, augmentation, we, you know, we had the STAR-D trial. It works, uh, you know, in unipolar depression. Why not bipolar? And I, I think the key there is recognizing that brains are different. Yeah, and what's going on at the, the synapse, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, sort of the neurochemistry of a bipolar-affected uh, brain, yeah, is different. And so you can't just use what you know about mono, uh, unipolar depression in bipolar depression. It doesn't uh, translate well. Yeah, I think it's also nice to be able to, to fall back on a database. You know, 20 years, 30 years ago, we didn't have a database. It was, it was much more uh, prescribing-based evidence rather than evidence-based prescribing. Now we have clinical trials. We know that there are not class effects across all the second-generation antipsychotics, just like there are not class effects across all anticonvulsants. So some agents have very specific niche roles. As we're talking about, lamotrigine's niche role is more in the depressed phase, especially for stalling the depressed phase, not so much on the high side. Lithium, as Andy alluded, is more on the management of the high side than the low side. Some of the SGAs are useful for- Second generation Sorry, it is. The, the <laughs> typical antipsychotics, so quetiapine, lorazidone, cariprazine have value on the depressed side. Other agents have not been shown to. Loraz, um, lorazidone, lumateperone, which Dr. Nirenberg mentioned is on the horizon, has its two positive studies in bipolar depression. It's in front of the FDA now. So one of our questions was about what's in the pipeline and being looked at. It's always nice to tell patients there's a pipeline and that things are coming along. It helps inspire optimism. And the data with lumateperone, which is a very interesting compound, it's a very strong 5-HT2A antagonist, much, much more so than the D2 receptors. So it might be a kind of a nice thing for patients that are especially sensitive to the striatal motor adverse effects of antipsychotic drugs. But what's really cool about the lumateperone data is it worked really well, not just in bipolar one depression, but even better in bipolar two depression. And while our discussion tonight is really on bipolar one depression, maybe we'll come back next time and we'll talk about bipolar two because only quetiapine has some data and now lumateperone will. So that broadens the breadth of spectrum and gives us more to hope for. Yeah, and, and Joe, I think it, uh, Joe and Larry, I think it's important to point out that the most common treatment that people give is an antidepressant plus an antipsychotic other than OFC. So we really, really don't know if that helps, but we do know it's common, and at the very least, people should rethink that. Yeah, there was that American Journal paper last year that talked about the up, 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 up use of antidepressants as monotherapies, and so here's an instance where clinical practice isn't just sort of divergent with the evidence base, it's really orthogonal. So, so uh, the more that people are aware of the evidence base, I think the more we'll be able to make informed decisions. Yeah, and, and I, I just you know, reiterate, um, I think in, in primary care, we often uh, say, oh, I'm worried about metabolic, so I'm going to use aripiprazole. I know it's uh, going to be uh, 
uh, low risk for uh, metabolic. But we don't have a good database for aripiprazole in terms of demonstrating efficacy in bipolar disorder. In fact, we have a pretty bad database for it. Yeah. Two negative randomized trials. So imagine telling your patient, well, I'm going to give you something that might have some metabolic value, but it's never been shown to work for your potentially lethal ailment. Here you go. So we really got to take all the pieces and put them put them together. This has been a wonderful discussion. I wish it could go on longer, but sadly, we must wrap up. So if I can ask us to move to our summary slides, bipolar depression is a greater burden, source of morbidity and mortality for patients with bipolar one disorder as compared to the manic side. The manic side isn't nothing, but much of this complexity and chronicity that we talk about comes from the Southern hemisphere of the illness. Early recognition, proper intervention, critical, critical to forestalling progression, to educating patients, to getting them partnering in their own treatment so we can avoid misdiagnoses and possibly even forestall some of the complications of the illness. And do we have a next slide? What can we do to improve diagnosis? Screen, 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 screen. Every, every depressed patient at every episode, um, it's, it's a fluid mosaic over the course of time. Be very mindful of the risk windows, young adulthood, patients with a family history, early age and onset of first depression, um, highly recurrent brief depressions that come and go and come and go, psychosis during depression, non-response to antidepressants, play detective, build a story. Think about these screening tools and their pros and cons as Andy and other that we've described. These are screens, so use them, give them out, go over them with your patients, go over them again with your patients, give them to the family members so you're, you're getting all the convergent data you possibly can. Be aware of the four FDA-approved treatments for bipolar one depression. That is olanzapine, fluoxetine combination, quetiapine, lorazidone, and cariprazine. And we've talked about some of these more investigational treatments and um, be aware of guideline-based recommendations for bipolar one depression. Although, as Andy said, the uh, guidelines uh, come and go, so we have to stay abreast of things. And with that, I'm going to I'm going to wind us up and round it, round us out, wind us up. Thank you all for joining. I hope this has been a helpful presentation for you. Uh, it's been a, certainly an engaging one for me. I want to thank my friends and colleagues, Andy Nuremberg and Larry Culpepper, for, for keeping things very lively and moving and thought-provoking throughout our presentation. Thank you all for joining our broadcast tonight, focusing on bipolar one depression. Thank you for your participation. We hope you have a great night. Stay safe. You've been listening to a replay of a live broadcast about Bipolar 1 Depression. This activity was provided in collaboration by Forefront Collaborative and AKH Incorporated and supported by an educational grant from Allergan. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.